Welcome to Garden Church Podcast. We are in a series called Reconstructing Church. We want to talk about what it means to be the church today. How do we live out the mission of Jesus today with the cultural challenges we face in Christianity? The book of Acts will be our guide as we learn to rebuild the church together in the power of the Holy Spirit. For more information, go to garden.church. Otherwise, enjoy this podcast. How we doing, church? Can we just check in? You guys have a good, good Christmas, New Year's? How about this row? We'll just talk. You guys good? Yeah, okay. Pulse decent. Any awkward family moments you want to tell? Yeah, I see the one over there. Oh, wow, you got called out. Zoom in for the live stream. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> oh. Was one of your resolutions to come to church? I see, I see you all in the back row. I see it. I see, I see it. Check. Okay, next week. I'll see it now. <clears throat> um, been carrying this series. It's called Reconstructing Church for a bit. Uh, the series title is Reconstructing Church, Building a Church That Looks Like Jesus. The reason I feel this is a moment for us to talk about it is because culture has a problem with the church. We live in a moment of time in the United States where we are the least Christian or becoming the least Christian. Gen Z is the least church generation to date outside of the Civil War or predating the Civil War. So we're seeing like never before a problem with people who are opting out of their faith, but they're not, some aren't opting out of faith, some are opting out of the church where we're redefining what it means to be a follower of Jesus based on convenience and feelings. Much like culture that can redefine definitions throughout history, we're redefining what it means to be the church today. And I thought, you know what? We need to define our terms as a community. We live in a moment where we can pick and choose. And I want to say, you can't do that in Jesus's eyes. You can't love the groom and not be the bride. So let's jump to Acts chapter 1. If you have a Bible, let's pull it out. Let's get those new Bibles. Some of you got fresh leather-bound Bibles. Some of you have your idols in your, your hands. I see them. I'm going to call them idols all year round because you know it's true. Like the thing is, people are like, why are you calling it an idol? Because it occupies your life. Right? Am I wrong? Show me one person with an iPhone that doesn't have a distraction problem. And I, what they've done is turn their iPhone into a dumb phone. So I rest, I rest my case. Bring a Bible. I'm just playful today. All right, Acts chapter one. Let's read it together. I'll read it. You don't read it out loud. Sometimes I say that and you're like, I'll read it too. Let's not do that. It'll distract me. It, all right, here we go. You're like, let's read it together. You said together. But yours is King James, okay? Mine's NIV. Thou saith, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's his former book? I'm sorry, what? There it is, Luke. Okay, so season one is the gospel of Luke. Season two is Acts, okay? We good with that? You're like, oh, I get it. I didn't get it before, now I get it. Netflix terms, it makes the Bible easier. Until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days 
And what did he do? He spoke about the kingdom of God. Just maybe highlight that. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, because he loves a good meal, he gave them a command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around and they said, hey, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said, you fools, what are you talking about? No, he said, it's not time. It's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. He says, don't worry about it. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the the text I want to look at. The word of the Lord. Some of you come from a different tradition. Yes. Just testing the waters here. Acts chapter one, one through eight. We're going to talk about it in a moment, but just let me, let me help define the word church and give you some history and then we'll come back. Does that sound all right? All right. Um, When we're talking about church, we need to look at the words used in the New Testament to define it because in our culture, the idea of church is so watered down and confusing because this kind of structure is not at all what it was like in the first century. So the word is ecclesia. It's the Greek word that's used most frequently for the word church other than family or the disciples of Jesus. Ecclesia is translated into congregation, gathering, assembly, or community. It's taken from the verb called out once, which was borrowed by the Greeks. In Greece, in their city-states, citizens of Greece had ecclesias. Hundreds of years before the term was used in the New Testament or for, uh, after Jesus' life and the church took off, it was used as a political phrase for citizens who were called out once to participate in the political ideology and the governing of the city-states based on their unique privileges. This is the term used most frequently to describe God's community post-resurrection of Jesus and post-Pentecost. You guys good with that? It's a lot of history and theology, but I got more for you. Ready? Matthew 16, Jesus says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell, or Hades, will not overcome it. That's encouraging. Anyone have a rough year? Anyone feel the attack of the enemy? Anyone's swing outside of their house gets stolen at 3.03 this morning? That was our house. Some, someone stole my kid's swing. It doesn't make sense. And I'm not saying it's Satan, but maybe. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Ephesians 3, verse 10, it says, his intent was, now, was that now through the ecclesia, listen to this, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's some type of unbelievable purpose that the church, you and I as people of God, exists to bear witness to the supernatural spiritual realities of the world. You, yes, you. You petty, reactive, angry, judgmental, hypocritical, full of sin and doubt, yet called saint beloved, manifold wisdom of God you are. 
How's that for January 7th? What are you doing? Just putting God's manifold wisdom on display? Put that in my bio. So what, what does that mean? The church is not a building. It's not a brand. It's not a website. It's not a bunch of Christians hanging out, drinking $5 coffees, talking about their emotions. It's not about Christians coming to sing songs in order to feel some warm fuzzy and call it the spirit. It's not a social network designed as a political tool of power. It's not a Bible study or a social justice group. You want me to say it again? I'm not. It's the people of God filled with the Holy Spirit living under the lordship of Jesus for the purposes of continuing Jesus' mission on earth. That's the church. Not your little group. It has nothing to do with Jesus' mission, everything to do with your emotions. That's not the same thing. I want you to hear this because that's not why we exist. Let me go back further. Are you guys okay? You're okay on time? Okay, great. We'll go right up to 1045 and then I'll say amen and you can go. Now, I love the Bible, as you know, but the word, there's a Jewish counterpart to the word ecclesia used in the Old Testament. And there's this principle called the principle of first mention or the law of first mention. And it doesn't just work in literature or in the Bible in our interpretation of language or words, meaning um, it actually, I think, works in society as a whole. The principle of first mention is this. The way a word is used in the Bible the first time becomes the dominant interpretation for how that word should be interpreted in the future. So when love is used in the Old Testament, it's about Abraham's love for Isaac. That becomes the father's love becomes the, the, the most powerful structure or idea, idea of love for the whole Bible. God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. So you, you begin to interpret things different. Now, the word community or congregation or assembly is used in Exodus chapter 12. Here's where it says, you don't have to go there, I just wanna read it. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of four of your year. Tell the Edah, is the word, community of Israel, that on the 10th day, this month, this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And it goes on to talk about the Passover. So the first time the word congregation or the word Hebrew word idah, which is the Jewish counterpart for Ecclesia that's used in the Bible is directly connected to the Passover, the most significant moment in Israel's history. It is the defining moment when Israel's liberated from Egypt. It was the Passover that they had to take a lamb and sacrifice it and take the blood and put it on the doorposts, signifying to the angel of death that was gonna come over the land of Egypt and kill all the firstborn, including animals, that the angel would pass over that house because they, there was an atonement for the sacrifice. This is the moment. So every single time the Jewish people will read the hundreds of references to being community it will be marked by the liberation that God gave them in Exodus. That their identity as the people of God is framed by God's liberating power to set them free from slavery. That it was God who provided the sacrifice. It was God who gave them freedom. It's God who takes them to Sinai and makes them a community. It's not that they had an identity apart from God. It's that God made them a community and that they would be defined by that moment in history 
and remember it for the rest of their life. And every time they get together and share a meal as a community, it's in reference to the liberation God gave them. It's in reference to the covenant God made with them, saying you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a treasured nation. You will represent me on earth. That is key, that is central to their identity. They don't exist for themselves, they exist for the nations. Ida is not warm, fuzzy hugs to feel good. Ida is the liberation of all people everywhere because that's what God's doing. Are you with me? Rabbis translated Ida to mean witnessing body. So when the word Ida is ever shared in all the Old Testament, the people of God are referencing this idea that they are a witnessing body. Witnessing body. The community that has bore, that watched Yahweh provide miracles and liberation and freedom and healing and provision and all of those things. And so them as a community, they're formed as uh, a, a community saved by God's grace, marked for a purpose. The liberation of Israel was fundamental to their identity and community. Let me just make this clear to summarize all of the Old Testament. God's community exits, exists, can we change that for the next service? Exists for God's purposes in the world. Church exists for God's purpose in the world. The church without a mission is not a church. You good? Back to Acts. Here we go. Acts 1, in my former book, you already got this, season 1, the Gospel of Luke. Season 2, is the Acts of the Apostles. So if you haven't paid attention to Luke, what you need to know in summary, the Gospel of Luke is simply the life ministry of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. Acts is the continuation of Luke. It is the life and ministry of Jesus through the local church by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. You guys good? So as we frame the purpose of our church through the book of Acts, as we talk about reconstructing the church, we have to hold in our hearts the purpose of the church, which is to continue the life and ministry of Jesus. How do I know this? Well, I've read the Bible a lot, and that helps us remain faithful to the mission of God if we just say, well, this is what we should do. Now, there's a lot that we can do to damage people without context and good scholarship and good interpretation or exegesis. But I'm excited for what this points us to. So it says, I I told you to pay attention in Acts 1. Just stay with me for a few moments. It says, Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the, don't get sick of this word, kingdom. Don't get sick of this phrase. Kingdom is the best idea. It's the best, the kingdom of God is the best phrase that captures all of the teaching of Jesus and all of the ministry of Jesus in a phrase. It's electrifying. We should go, when we hear that, we mean all of the stuff. When we say all of the stuff, we're talking about Jesus's ambition of reconciling the cosmos back to the way it was intended to be in Genesis 1 and 2. Are you guys good? So when we say our vision or is here as in heaven, that's encapsulating Jesus' work through the local church. And so it begins, I just need you to see the, the narrative that Luke, Luke writes a theological narrative. 
It's a story of what happened. Historically, we know lots of this took place historically because of archaeology and lots of history. We have found outside of the biblical uh, lens, outside of the documents that are in the Bible, we have other writings that confirm the, the history of the church. Acts was, uh, uh, was written, but it experienced over a 30, period, uh, 30 years of time. Like Acts, I'll get to that in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. I love it. Hold on. If you don't notice, I love history. I love it. My son's like, what's your favorite you know, subject in school? I was like, history. That's why I'm a, I teach the Bible. <clears throat> I love history. I think more than anything, especially for this next generation, history is so needed to understand where we're going. Right? Okay, anyways, that's a, side, that's a freebie. Go to, go to the end. Okay, so it begins in the kingdom. Acts 28, I just want to show this to you because it's so good as a theological narrative. Remember, we're supposed to continue the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus was all about the kingdom. Acts ends with this guy named Paul who was persecuting the church and then he gets saved and he goes around the world planting churches. He gets arrested. He's under house arrest. He's literally being watched by the guards of Caesar. Now stay with me. This is free. Luke part one. It's always free. Luke part one (laughs) begins with Caesar Augustus located in Rome issuing a decree that forces these peasant teenagers to give birth to Jesus the Messiah in Bethlehem. Caesar's the most powerful person on the planet. He is the son of God, according to the Romans. And he issues a decree that sets the course for the fulfillment of the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. Are you with me? Right? Jesus' life, Luke chapter, uh, all of of Luke. Uh, And then Acts begins. And Acts begins with Jesus, the resurrected Christ, talking about the kingdom. And a few uh, decades later, around 30, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, a messenger of that peasant boy that was born in Bethlehem, is now under house arrest in Caesar's household in Rome, the most powerful place on the planet. And look how it ends. He's under house arrest. And in verse 28, it says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, shackled and arrested in Caesar's household, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God is without hindrance. You can't make this stuff up. Why, why am I so excited about it? Well, if you study history, you know that the church turned the Roman Empire upside down, right? I have some quotes about this. I'm going to skip the quote for the sake of time. But sociologist Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. He asked two questions I'm going to ask you. Question number one, how many Christians do you think there were in the year AD 100? Don't put the answer up yet. Just shout out some numbers. 30. 200. 100. Okay. AD 100. Okay. The answer is around 25,000 Christians. Wow, that's, that's exponential growth from 120, which we'll talk about next week. We're going to talk about the Pentecost Sunday and the power of the Holy Spirit. The following week, I have a friend who's last minute decided to come. His name's Chris Vallotton. He'll be here doing part two. So Chris will be here preaching on the power of the Holy Spirit part two in two weeks. You don't want to miss that. Here's the second question. How many Christians do you think there were just before Emperor Constantine came onto the scene, say AD 310? Okay, 25,000. How many Christians? Shout out within 200 years. Wait, wait, before you shout out numbers, let me just remind you that when Christianity at that time for those 200 years was an illegal religion, 
It was persecuted. They didn't have church buildings or websites. They didn't have the canon of scripture or professional institutions to formalize leadership. They didn't have secret sensitive services, youth groups, worship bands, commentaries, Bible apps, seminaries, or anything that you could find the church. They actually made joining the church really hard. How many Christians were there? One million? 2.5 million? 30 million? Who said 30? Wow, John, you read my notes. Answer is this. Half of the Roman Empire, 20 million Christians. This, this is the greatest movement in human history. Do you know this? What we are a part of? A movement that revitalized culture and kept uh, us, I mean, the, the history is amazing. But when we celebrate this moment, I just gotta say, it was the reality that Christianity has always flourished under harsh realities. In fact, the greatest threat wasn't from outside opposition, it was from success. And by the fifth century, within the fourth century actually, the official religion of the Roman world was Christianity. So out with the gladiatorial Greek gods, enough pretending that Roman Caesars were divine, Jesus whom we crucified is now Lord, and it would seem like it's victorious, but it became the slow death to Christianity. Now give me a little bit of time because I'm gonna get back to Romans, or back to Acts. The pattern of church history is simple. People of God thrive when the conditions are bad. But when the church buds up with worldly power, it tends to lose its spiritual power. So the church was no longer getting into the empire. The empire was getting into the church. In the words of Jesus, they lost their saltiness. So if you look back, historians believe in the fifth century, Christianity would be extinct within their lifetime because of the influence of culture within the church in the fifth century. There were always these moments where it was dark and Christianity was like a light that was about to be put out because culture was overtaking it. But throughout history, throughout the last 2,000 years, God blew his breath of life a wind would come over the church and the church would, would take on new forms to capture the new fire. They would build new wineskins to capture the new wine and God would move and revival would happen and it looked different all the time. In the fifth century, it was a monastic movement. Men and women went into the desert to say we have to flee culture to preserve the purity of the, of the kingdom culture. And, the, and for a thousand years, the monastic movement shaped history. If you wanted to be healed, you would go to a monastery for, for medicine. If you wanted to read literature, you go to a monastery because they preserved the books. They kept culture alive. And then there was corruption in the church. Once again, the church was in bed with culture, with all sorts of issues, hypocrisy, lies, bad theology, all sorts of things, and there was a reformation. Martin Luther, along with other revivalists and reformation uh, reformers, said that this is not what's in the text, and the church came alive again. <clears throat> and as a result of around 1500s, we have the reformation that took place, and uh, the church exploded with new life. This happened multiple times, and we know throughout history there were revivals in the 1800s. When culture was its worst, society was its darkest in the UK, there was an awakening that spread like wildfire where things began to shift in the 1800s. It moved over to the US and the United States. Most of the United States was not Christian at the, the birth of our nation. 
17% of America was Christian in 1776, but within 75 years at the point of the Civil War, one third of the nation became Methodist, let alone over half was Christian. That's with population growth. There was a massive move of God. What am I saying? When it's darkest, when we're overflowing with cultural norms that are opposite of the kingdom of God, God whispers to a few and revival begins to take shape. Now, why do I say that? Because we are at a moment in time that's darker than ever before. I want to paint a cultural landscape for you. Forgive me for preaching for so long. I'm going to keep going. Here we go. I knew it was two sermons in one. You get, you're my first uh, guinea pig. I'll, I'll cut it in the first. I don't have time to talk about all these, but I want you to see the bad news. And then we'll get to the good news in a second. The bad news. This is where we sit as the church today. The rise of deconstructionism. So I'm going to list these out. Let's just talk through them all. This is the, uh, the, a belief that started by Derrida back as a French philosopher that's come into the church. And essentially within the church, it's, we deconstruct and define um, the process of dissecting and examining any idea, tradition, practice, or belief in order to, to determine its truthfulness, usefulness, or impact. So we look at the institutions and we deconstruct and say, this doesn't belong, this doesn't belong. But it was an explosion that's taken place over the last 10 years, especially since COVID. People have deconstructed their faith, deconstructed the church for lots of reasons, which I'll name the next. Um, in general, there's a, a growing distrust in all institutions. We don't trust the media. We don't trust government. We don't trust uh, the healthcare industry. We don't tr tr trust the church. We don't trust any large institution. In fact, 18 to 34 year olds have a 24% likelihood they believe clergy or pastors are honest. Previous generation, 55% believe that the pastors leading churches were honest and full of integrity. It's down to 24%. There's a disassociation caused by burnout. What I've seen and what we can read about in a book called Church Refugees is that most of those who have deconstructed their faith or gave up on their church were highly dedicated to the church. I've seen this. Leaders within the church got burnt out and they deconstructed their faith. They weren't people who were lazy in the church, not participating. They were highly committed. And then things happened institutional woes, lots of things. And, but whatever it was, the causes they, it led to their burnout also led to their deconstruction of faith. There's a real problem in spiritual burnout that's happening in the church. We expect more and faster and larger and all sorts of things I've talked about. But we see that part of the disassociation is people are opting out of participating in church because they think they can follow a king without his kingdom community. And you can't, and just like society thinks we can have progress without his presence, we can't have the king without the, we can't have the kingdom without the king. And the king requires community. There's also the disillusion, disillusionment caused by the American gospel. These are reasons for deconstructionism. This is the landscape of our, our culture. I mean, I could go off on this. The American gospel is the consumer-oriented community. I don't have time. I have a lot to say on that, but I don't have time. We'll do it another time. Number five, probably the most real is deep pain. I see there's so much church hurt. In fact, if we were to do a poll of this gathering, so many of you have been harmed by the church. You've been harmed by people in this church or previous churches you're, you're still wounded by past experiences that you now project into any community. That's a real thing. That's not something that we can just push aside and be like, all right, deal with it. 
No, it's something to recognize that this is actually part of the problem. Part of the problem is we have deep church wounds and there's spiritual abuse and there's hypocrisy in the church and leadership and that's something that this generation for the first time is saying we're not going to put up with. We're not going to put up with a leadership that justifies lack of Christ-like means for the Christ ends. We can't do that anymore. Like we can't say, all right, well, it brought about, you know, a lot of people coming to church, but I was a toxic lead pastor along the way. We're not going to stand for that. Please don't stand for that. I'm not standing for that. I want to build a beautiful church that looks like Jesus' Jesus's way. And in my heart and mind, that means that I can be married for the rest of my life and my kids can be a part of the church and not have church hurt. They can love Jesus and his church and love being a part of the church family as pastor kids. That's my prayer, to build a church that my kids don't have to heal from. So that's part of the problem. The last one is the dystos, this is my favorite, I made this up, dystopian babble complex. <laughs> right? Like we put our faith in technology. We have godlike technology. We have these generative pre-transformed or pre-trained transformers. What is GPT? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, AI. So we have AI. You're like, what are you doing? <laughs> generative pre-trained transformers, <clears throat> GPTs. We have, this is going to be the year of AI. And you just, it's going to sweep over us. We're going to be like, well, how did we not use it? It's going to be, the, the technology advancement is frightening. <laughs> it's frightening. And I love Terminator, Matrix, 19, I love all that stuff. But we have a community and society that's searching like never before. And they're going after these things that are, uh, are simple reminders of Genesis 12 with the Tower of Babel, where technology in Genesis 12 is used to displace God. All that to say, in the words of Pope Emeritus Benedict, the spiritual crisis overtaking the West is the most serious since the fall of the Roman Empire in the fifth century. The light of Christianity is flickering out all over the Western Hemisphere. There are people alive today who may live to see the death of Christianity. Whew. That was 15 years ago or so that he wrote this. Leslie Newbegin, a missiologist, wrote about the Western culture. He said, what we have is a pagan society whose public life is ruled by beliefs which are false. And because it is not a pre-Christian paganism, but a paganism born out of the rejection of Christianity, it is far tougher and more resistant to the gospel than the pre-Christian paganism with which four missionaries have been in contact during the past 200 years. Here, without possibility of question, is the most challenging missionary frontier of our time. That's what we sit in today. In the words of the great missiologist Leslie Newbegin, the most challenging frontier of our time. What do we do? Do we accept these conditions, live in despair, and simply deconstruct the church? Or let me inspire you with a Levi's commercial. We were taught how the pioneers went into the West. They opened their eyes and made up what things could be. A long time ago, things got broken here. People got sad and left. 
Maybe the world breaks on purpose so we can have work to do. People think there aren't frontiers anymore. They can't see how frontiers are all around us. Hej. Hej. I don't know how that was going to go. People think there aren't frontiers anymore. I think there are so many ruins that we're walking through in the church. And this world has built a It seems like anyone with craft beer and uh, expensive coffee and a microphone built a podcast of authority towards the church. A little bit of wounds mixed with their coffee makes a perfect podcast. I think we should light the church on fire. As it burns down, we sit in the pew so that we can reconstruct. I want to build a church that looks like Jesus. So go forth. And what's the guiding principle? It's Acts 1.8. You will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Simple solution to the problems of the world is that the church would be church. I know that sounds hard, maybe too simple, but that's the answer. Witness is the word Martis, where we get the word martyr, it means to lay one's life down. It also means someone who testifies, somebody who brings evidence to a story, event, or moment. So witness is somebody who affirms the facts of a reality. Jesus says the Spirit of God will make you the kind of person that points to the resurrected Christ, that you're going to live in a way that your life affirms truth, beauty, justice, goodness, righteousness, but most importantly, the resurrected Christ, Jesus. You become irresistible to a world looking, irresistible to a world in misinformation because you have truth, irresistible to people longing for beauty because you exude the beauty of God because you live out of your identity. It's the spirit who does this, not practices, Not programs, not conditions over a time. It is a life permeated by God's presence. That requires humility, but that requires purpose and community. Because the witness is not you as an individual, it's us. This is the problem of Western culture. We've individualized everything. If you go back to Exodus and you read the story as a narrative, the story of Exodus is how God takes what uh, Exodus 1 says is a swarm Israel's called a swarm. No form enculturated, indoctrinated by Egypt as slaves. And it's the process of this crowd becoming a covenant community. And it's the covenant community that represents God on earth. Now, if you go to the church, it's not us as individuals. Yes, of course it's you as an individual, but it's us as the church. 
It's us that bear witness to the powers and principalities. It's not you in your home alone. It's you in your home alone after experiencing the life of the kingdom here and in house church and together because it's, we, it requires us together to bear witness. We cannot possibly live the way of Jesus without each other. And the church is witness. It's power infused, transform lives, shaping the world around us, not because we're doing campaigns or crusades, but because because this life is permeating heaven. That's witness. So for 15 years, we work as a church, have worked as a church, and will work as a church to bless, to love, to extend, to provide. Like Christmas, 500 families from Franklin or more. Like Thanksgiving, where 200 Thanksgiving meals plus 150, you didn't even know this, an additional 150 turkeys to rescue mission because the week before, someone in our church said they need some, uh, the person who was bringing 150 turkeys to the rescue mission can't do it. Will you guys step in? And our leadership said, of course we'll step in. We'll take care of it. That's witness. Witness is recognizing that God's house is the space for transformation. So what do we do? We provide rent, we care for the poor, we preach the gospel with words and with our lives, we, we host Alpha, we gather together, we pray for the sick, we do all of the things, we confess our sin, we, sins, we create environments, we live generously because that's witness. The goal isn't transforming the world. Let me, let me say this again. The goal isn't transforming the world or winning people for Jesus. It's actually different. It's to live as Jesus, like Jesus, and to see transformation occur only as a byproduct of love. You guys good? Go forth. There's this beautiful quote, I don't have time to quote, but essentially the summary is, the early, by the second century, the early church no longer allowed outsiders into their gatherings because they would be murdered. They made it nearly impossible for outsiders to witness worship, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, prayer, the gifts of the Spirit. You couldn't see the visible activity of the gatherings. You could only see the visible activities of their characteristics outside of the church. But the author says in church history, it was the invisible activity in the church that empowered the visible activity outside the church. That's what we want. We want to create an environment where transformation occurs and life just oozes out of this place. I love that Natalie said they had rooms to, to stretch out. There's no room to stretch out here. One of the things I need you to see is that the church says it's going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It never exists to stay. It always exists for the outsiders. As much as we want to keep this, oh, we have R9, there might be a lot more services in the future. Lord knows we're going to need a bigger building in the years to come. And we need to plant that in your head now because I want to buy property on PCH. Not to build Church Inc., but to build a, a witness to the world. And I think the Lord will do that. There's gonna be so much that happens, but let me give you one last thought and then we'll close. The cultural landscape is also hopeful. Number one, never have I seen people more spiritually open than they are now. People are, they, they're more open to portals and dimensions. 
<laughs> than ever before. But we have the source. We have the God who created portals and dimensions. And we have the Holy Spirit. The second is that they're searching for answers. And for the first time in many years since the scientific revolution, science is now proving God's existence. The further we get, the more we get towards astrophysics, the more we get towards quantum physics, the more it looks like God. I don't know if you're reading these things, but more and more of the smartest people in the world are becoming Christian based on their findings in science. So as people search for answers, guess what? Jesus is the truth. People are longing for community. We're a community. <laughs> I'm just trying to make the point that it's actually quite easy if we just be the church. Let me, let me put it this way. People are hurting and need healing. Well, Jesus is a healer. People are trapped in addiction and need to be set free. Jesus delivers people today. People are living in despair and need hope. Jesus is our hope. People are lost and looking for meaning. Jesus gives life meaning. People are searching for all the right things in all the wrong places. Jesus offers a better way to live, not just hope for where you go after you die. People are deceived and living in misinformation or disinformation. Jesus is truth. People are looking for power to change, and Jesus promises power to change through the Holy Spirit. Over the next 11 weeks, we're gonna look more in depth. This is more of a summary. I just wanna inspire you to look at what it looks like to build the church. I want you to commit to building the church. No longer sit on the, the outside being a spectator. The way forward is full participation, full devotion to Jesus, which requires you to be devoted to the church, to brothers and sisters that you disagree with. I love that it says Judea and Samaria. It's like saying the far right and the far left. It's like saying the Black Panther Party and the KKK. In context, it was the racially divided context that the gospel is going to spread to places you don't think they group together. Nope, the gospel brings them together because Jesus is Lord. Amen? All right, let's stand. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at garden.church. Church.